If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to go to John chapter 6 with me this morning again. We're back to John chapter 6. Our series is called Conversations with Christ, and that's what most of John is, a series of conversations between either individuals or groups of people that talk to him. Some of them go to him. Some of them search for him. Some Jesus approaches and has conversations with them. But as you're thinking about that this morning, I want to try and set this up for you because the title of my sermon this morning is called The Offer Versus the Offering. So The Offer Versus the Offering. And I was trying to think of a way to make this hip and cool and modern for you. And so here's the best attempt at a middle-aged guy to do that considering the broad spectrum of ages in our, our church. So back in the 1970s, director Martin Scorsese directed the first of his trilogy of movies known as The Godfather. Okay? It was about a mob family. You follow it basically through generations. And Al Pacino was the main actor, but it was Marlon Brando that stole the show because of one particular line. It, it was a, a, an iconic line in this movie that has been repeated over and over again. And for the part, we're told that Marlon Brando put cotton balls in his mouth to oh, out, blow out his cheeks a little bit and play that Italian mobster really well. And in and, and the very first movie, he makes this statement. He goes, I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. It's okay to laugh, all right? You know, church can't be that stuffy, okay? But that's what he does. And I, I, I'm not grown up. I've seen comedies, comics mimic this. I've seen it come up in other movies. I've been in my peer groups and all this kind of stuff. And someone will say something else. I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. And in many ways, John chapter 6, 41 to 51, is the essence of God saying, I'm going to make them an offer they can't refuse. And yet, they do. You see, today we're going to look at the fact that what Christ offers us is nothing like what the Godfather says. You see, in the movie, the Godfather's motivation for saying this is very selfish. It's against your will. It's meant to take away from you, not to transform you. But we're going to see in our passage that when you refuse to see, you refuse to accept and trust and believe in who Jesus is, then listen, it doesn't matter what kind of offer is made. It just doesn't. You're going to reject it. You're going to be blinded by it. In fact, you'll stumble over it. Now, let me try and explain you what I'm talking about. Because you guys have all experienced this in real life. This is not foreign to you. This is not theoretical. Have you ever been offered something by someone, but you refused simply because who was making the offer? For parents, I, I don't know if you did this, but my, my two sons went through a phase where they'd come and they'd want to play on words and they'd say, hey, dad, uh, I'll bet you this, and if you win, I'll give you a million doll hairs. <laughs> and, you weren't, you know, and they were hoping that I wouldn't pick up on the fact that they said doll hairs. You know, and Brandon actually took this doll and cut all the hairs off the head once and tried to go, aha, here, you know, and didn't think that I, and I had to play, I was a good dad, I played dumb, and like, oh, wow, a million doll hairs, you know, that kind of thing. But have you ever been made an offer by someone, and you just flat out refused them because you knew the credibility of the person making the offer? You didn't buy what they were selling. Let me give you an example. How about someone says to you they want to give you something, but they're from Shea Heights? When I was in my 20s, Shea Heights was not known for necessarily being the place 
of credibility. I, I grew up in the age of the Drugans, if you remember those, for those of you that are native Newfoundlanders. Uh, I was talking to Steve, and this made me laugh. Uh, Steve, I was telling Steve about this, and he said, yeah, like if somebody from Butlerville were to offer you to sell, sell you something, and I guess that must be a place out there in Butlerville that he doesn't uh, think people are too uh, credible. And then I looked at him, and I said, well, what about if one of them Dawes made you an offer? And then he didn't think that was quite as funny. <laughs> but you've done that. Someone has come and made you an offer, <coughs> and you've just completely discounted it because of who was making the offer. Today we're going to see that the amazing grace we've sung about today, the amazing grace we're going to read about, offered to this crowd, is overlooked and missed entirely because of the claim of the offerer, Jesus. Now don't forget why John is writing this. You, you know i got to go back here every time I preach this, right? John chapter 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This was John's conclusion. This was what John wants you to come to a conclusion to. And when he makes this same offer to this crowd, you're going to see they don't want it. They don't like it. They don't get it. And that by believing this, you may have life in the name of Christ. <coughs> this is the purpose. But I want us to look at our passage. John chapter 6. Let's look at verse 41 and see the offer versus the offering. <laughs> Jesus comes and says, I'm going to make you an offer that you can't refuse. And the crowd's like, no, 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 I don't like your offer because we don't like you. See if you can pick it up in the passage. In verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. The Jews grumbled about him. That's Jesus. Why? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned that the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he was from God. He has seen the Father. And then Jesus makes this incredible offer. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then he says what he said in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Why? So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And I love how Jesus ends this. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I have four quick points for you where I break up these 10 verses. Number one, if you like to take notes, is this. When the offer is missed because you don't like the guy making the offer. This is how our passage starts. Jesus has offered himself, right? We find ourselves now, for context, you've got to realize where this has taken place. 
Rewind all of chapter 6. He starts by off in a mountain, somewhere on the other side of Galilee, where he feeds 5,000 men. Could be as many as fifteen or 20,000 human beings. He goes up into the mountain to pray. Disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. Make a big, they're in the midst of a vicious storm. Jesus comes walking on water. They take him into the boat. Calms the storm. They're over at Capernaum. This is where they go into the synagogue in the Capernaum, which was basically the home base of Jesus. You know the story. The crowd then finds him. They take a pile of boats. It must have been quite an entourage to get potentially 10, 15,000 people over to Capernaum. Capernaum's not that big, so they probably tripled the size of the population as they all pile in there looking for Jesus. And they're like, where did you go? And Jesus says, listen, you're only looking for another happy meal. But let me tell you something greater than just a free lunch. And this is where you get this dialogue, which has been building and building and building. And so he makes them the offer in verse 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. And you remember, this started out as a search for a possible king. When you come to the end of the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 27, if you look in your Bibles and you see it, it says Jesus perceived that they were going to take him by force to make him the king. They're euphoric. They're frantic. They're like, this guy can feed us from nothing. Let's make him king. But the crowd misses the point. If you go on from 27 to 36, they start a negotiation. All right, Jesus, what else can you do? Show us something that you can do that will amaze us, and then we'll follow you. And that quickly turns into the dare of verse 30, where they try to put Jesus in their debt. And then Jesus explains again why, who he is and why he has come, saying he's better than manna. And then the crowd says in verse 34, well, give us that bread. Since you're talking about Moses and manna, I'll tell you what. Prove to us that you're really this good. Understand, they're not asking for him to prove that he's God. You know what they're asking him to prove? Prove you're as good as Moses. Prove to us that you're as powerful as Moses. Give us manna like Moses gave manna. And of course, then there's the most incredible verses in 35 to 40 where he says, I am the bread of life. And my father will give me people from all nations and they will be mine forever. But then you come to verse 41, and it starts out by saying, the Jews started complaining. They go from wanting a king to negotiating with a potential king to now going, I don't really know if you should be king. That quickly. Now, what you don't understand here in the passage, reading between the lines, is the Jews started grumbling here. It's likely the leaders of the synagogue. The crowd have been the onlookers now, or that been the ones that have been participating. And the Jewish leaders of the synagogue have been watching this happen because Jesus is in the synagogue. Place is packed. There's this ongoing conversation. Jesus starts throwing down God's stuff. And now the, the leaders of the synagogue start complaining, going, wait, wait a sec. Wait, 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 wait. We better arrest this situation. We better take charge of this situation and challenge Jesus before this whole thing gets out of hand. And so look at verses 41 and 42 again. Notice why they are complaining. They're grumbling not about what Jesus is asking them to believe. They're complaining because of what Jesus claimed about himself. 
You see, they don't, they don't stumble. They don't even deal with the idea of, hey, believe in me stuff or repent stuff or confess your sin stuff. They're not even mentioning the fact that Jesus said, come to me and if you're hungry, I'll give you uh, food to eat. If you're thirsty, I'll quench your thirst. They don't, you see, the crowd was looking for this benevolent king, but Jesus claims to be Lord of all. God in the flesh, the one to whom all my humanity must come. And let's be honest, that just didn't sit well with the crowd. That's not what they were looking for. Because a king is one thing. A savior, a messiah, means you've got to give up control of your life. That means that this kind of trust means surrender. To believe this is to believe that someone other than them knows what's best for them. It means they can't be God. Jesus must be God. You see, a lot of people like the idea of Jesus. Just don't make him God. F.F. Bruce, that great Princeton Greek scholar said, How could a man whose family they were all well acquainted with make such a claim as he did? How could he provide, much less be, the food of immortality? How could he be the bond between heaven and earth? You see, this is what they, it wasn't the offer they missed because they didn't like who was making the offer. They were confused. And don't miss the irony that John the Apostle is giving you. Just as the Israelites grumbled about the first giver of bread, Moses, which our crowd doesn't let you in, right? They say, if you're like Moses, give us this manna. And you remember, you can read about it in Exodus 15, but in Numbers 11, after they ate manna for close to 40 years, the Jews were like, we don't like this stuff anymore. I, I miss the fish of Egypt. I miss the meals we had. They, you know, it went from, yay, miracle, to, uh, I'm tired of that now. You know, because like, it doesn't matter, folks. You, one thing you're going to learn about yourself, if I said to you, I will fund for you to eat at the keg every day, three meals a day, Eventually, you might, you, you, first that you might be, yeah, but 20 years from now, you'd probably think that was a death sentence to go to the cake again and eat. I mean, I know my friend Scott loves the Billy Miner's pie that's down at the keg, but if he had to eat it every day, three meals a day for 20 years, even Scott would finally say, enough, all right? And this is what they didn't want to admit. They're thinking only in terms of temporary satisfaction, temporary hunger that could be satisfied. But Jesus says, no, I want to give you something much, much better. And so they're grumbling. They're not just struggling that Jesus could be like Moses. They're not struggling that maybe Jesus could be like another Elijah. They're struggling because Jesus said, I'm God. I have come down from heaven. And notice what they say. Isn't this isn't this Joseph's boy? The religious leaders are of Capernaum in the synagogue. Isn't, isn't this the carpenter's son from Nazareth? And now he's here in our synagogue claiming to be God. And they're, they're saying this basically to the crowd. They're not actually complaining this to Jesus. They're letting the crowd know, listen, don't, don't be suckered by this dude. This is Mary and Joseph's boy. And he's claiming to have come down from heaven. And so how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 43 and 44, cause the call to look up and not around. I love this about Jesus because Jesus never is in the act of defending himself. He never addresses what they actually say. Look at what he says in verse 43. In verse 43, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. That's the most he answers their question. 
He says, don't grumble. He goes, no end of Joseph and Mary, doesn't go into his miraculous birth, doesn't do any of that. All he does is don't grumble among yourselves. And then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So he says, stop looking around. Look up. Look up. Jesus deals with them on their issues, but he never addresses his birth, his lineage, or his parenthood. But notice this, unable to refute the message, the people focused on the messenger. How often do we do that? If someone tells you something you don't like, if someone challenge you, challenges you, and so, how often when someone confronts you with something and if you don't like what they say, they're like, well, who are you? I know you're not perfect. You know, if someone comes to you and lovingly tells you that maybe you could treat your spouse better, and if you don't like it, the first thing you do is start picking apart their marriage. Or if someone tells you better how to parent, the first thing you do is start picking holes in their parenting. The crowd is, they, they, they were unable to refute the message, so they're like, well, let's attack who he is. We, we, we can't really poke holes in the message, so let's attack the messenger. We, how often have you reached other Christians, or sorry, reached out and, and you've witnessed to people? I mean, I don't know about you, but the number one thing I get when I witness to people is not to, to actually deal with God's word. Very few non-believers want to engage me in God's word. When I tell them about Christianity, when I tell them about who God is, when I tell them what God has done in my life, when I tell them what God will do in their life, you know what most of the time I get? Well, do you know so-and-so? Because he claims to be a Christian, and you should see how he acts. And we go right after the hypocrites. The problem with that is you'll never tell Jesus you didn't accept him for the failings of others. Because Jesus is going to look at you and go, but I've never failed you. I've never let you down. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we shouldn't strive to be like Christ. That's the theme of this year for us, to be Christ-like. But you know as well as I do that often when you give someone the gospel and they don't like the message, what do they do? They attack the messenger. In verse 43, Jesus addresses what the Jews are grumbling about. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, they're looking for a benevolent king provider. And they're looking all around. Don't forget, back in verse 15, they're about to make Jesus king. Why? Because he fed them. But they're already complaining. They're already doubting. They're already demanding. They're already questioning. And so Jesus says, stop your grumbling. You're looking around you, but look up. And look at what he does in verse 43 and 44. He connects himself to God and explains that it is God who draws any of us to Jesus and then promises that those who come, those who are drawn, every one of them will be kept and presented to God. Now, don't pass over this one word. No one comes to the Father, but the Father draws them. Now, we need to make sure you don't confuse this word. Because often in church, this word draw, people will say, well, that means entice or convince. So someone will be like, see, Jesus, the gospel is like carrots. You know, God, Jesus puts a carrot on a stick and kind of dangles it in front of you and says, come to me, come to me, come to me, as if somehow it's a negotiation. But that's not the meaning of the word. This word draw here means to compel, to, 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 um, to, to drag against your will, if you would, okay? The same word is used in John 21 when it talks about they hauled the dragging of a net full of fish and it says they drew the fish in. 
All these fish are in a net, okay? In Acts 16, 19, it's used when Paul and Silas are dragged before the civil authorities. They're not enticed, all right? They're not, they're not you know, please, Paul, will you come? It's the idea of drawing water up from a well. And I, I read this week, I thought it was hilarious, of two pastors that were arguing over this, and this guy was like, no, no, Jesus entices you like carrots. It's like drawing up the, we- the water from the well. And the other guy says, well, how do you draw water from a well? You don't stand over and go, here, water, 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 water. Here, water, and hope that the water comes up. you got to put the, the bucket down there, and you got to draw it up, right? And this is what Jesus does. In each case, it's the idea of resistance that's overcome by superior force. By nature, man in sin is resistant to God, and unless overcome by God, God's inward working, he cannot and will not come to Christ. And truth is, we all know this. I don't have to convince you of this because you live this. You've experienced this in real life. We have a free will, but it's completely affected by sin. Let me prove it. I have three children. I am a very good moral man. I'm not perfect, but I'm a moral dude. And you should all sit there and be impressed with my morality. (laughs) I never, ever taught my children... How to lie. I never taught them how to get angry. All three of my kids, you know what their first word was? Guess. Somebody said it, I already heard it. No. no. Never taught, never ever did I teach Brandon. Now, Brandon said after me, no. <laughs> Brandon just looked at me one day and went, no. <laughs> I wish I could tell you he stopped saying it, but he hasn't. <laughs> All right? The only redemption I get is now he's got a kid saying no to him, and I love it, all right? Brandon, I've had this conversation because Theo, he was trying to get Theo on FaceTime with us, and Theo was cranky, and he was hitching a fit, and Brandon was trying to get, and he was like, would you just sit still? And I'm like, Brandon, that's some great parenting there, boy. You're knocking it. He's like, Dad, little imp won't be good. And I'm like, yeah, because he's a sinner, He's got free will, but he's a slave to his sin. You never teach a child how to demand their way. But I want you to understand this does not mean that Jesus is like the Godfather. Okay? Jesus doesn't make us an offer we can't refuse in this selfish, to your detriment kind of way. How does Jesus make us an offer we can't refuse? Pastor Richard Phillips says, The Bible shows that God draws men and women to Christ, listen to me now, by graciously changing their hearts and setting them free from their bondage and sin. See, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, remember Lydia, the seller of purple? Okay, and she comes to Christ. You know what it actually says in Acts 16, 14? It says, the Lord opened her heart. He opened her heart. See, this is what God does in conversion. He opens heart. Remember what Ezekiel the prophet said in Ezekiel 36? I will give you a new heart. Notice, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus tells the crowd to know the gospel, to understand who I am is a gift from God. And when it happens, you'll not just want Jesus to be king. You'll be desperate for him to be your Lord. And you've known this. I've been around Christianity since I was five years old. My parents got saved two weeks apart when I was five. 
And I went to Sunday school, and then I went to Christian school, and then I went to youth group. And my parents were one of those parents. When they got saved, they got all the way saved. We were just around it all the time. My dad became a pastor. I, I mean, I just, I was a product of Christianity. I knew how to sing the songs. I knew how to do all the things that I was supposed to do. I married my wife, and she thought I was a Christian because I played the part well. But in June of 1993, at 21 years of age, on a Saturday night, I was angry, frustrated. I was around all this Christianity. I knew the language. I knew how to play the part. And Jesus seemed 10 million miles away to me. And I don't know if I've told you the story. I was a Saturday night. Debbie and I were watching television in our apartment that had a fireplace. And I thought I was the king of the castle. And in 1993, we were paying $100 a month for cable. Let that sink in, all right? That tells you I was not good with money. That's what that should tell you. And I was flicking through the channels, as a man is wont to do, trying to watch 14 things all simultaneously, and could not find anything to watch. And that was a Saturday night. And I literally, in a burst of anger, threw the remote at the wall. It blew apart. Frightened poor Debbie. The p I and I went into my little tirade. I can't believe how much for money we're paying. Nothing good. Do I I'm going to bed. <laughs> Stomped off to my bedroom. Threw myself on my bed. And realized that tomorrow was Sunday. And my mother was going to call me. And she was going to ask me two questions. Are you reading your Bible? And did you go to church? And I hated her for asking me those questions. So I look into my closet, because I was a good boy. I was a moral fella. I even went to Bible college. And so I had a bunch of books in my closet poked away, and I saw the back of a thing, and I, I still have that book in my office, and you can see where I wrote out my testimony in the first chapter. It's called Lectures to My Students from Charles Spurgeon. And so in an absolute fit of desperation to get my mother off my back, I said, I'm going to read this book. I'm bored. Deb's out trying to put the remote back together. So I'll read this book, I'll go to church, and when mom calls, I'll tell her I read my Bible, tell her I took Debbie to church, oh, and I'm reading a Christian book. That'll get her off my back for like three weeks. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> the first chapter of that book is to be a preacher of grace, you must know the grace of God yourself. And Spurgeon talks about that passage in James chapter 1 where it says the natural man beholds his face in a mirror and then he sees what's wrong with him, and he leaves and forgets what he sees. And folks, all I can tell you is I was laying on my bed that night, and I read that, and I have read these things over and over again. I've heard countless sermons, and that night I rolled, and I wrestled with God, and it was just like God became real to me in a way I can't even express to you. And I remember telling God, I want no more games. I got nothing to offer. I'm tired. I'm exhausted of trying to live up to everybody else's expectations, and all it does is make me angry. And either I'm getting off this bed, and you're real, or I'm getting off this bed, and literally I went all Clint Eastwood, and I said, I'll see you in hell. And God's spirit would not let me get off that bed. And that night, Jesus opened my eyes to him and became my Lord, not just my religion. I have no explanation for that except what I just told you. Jesus drew me to himself. This was the promise. 
How does God do this? He sent his son who would send the Holy Spirit. A.W. Prink says this. It is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the self-righteousness of the sinner and convicting him of his lost condition. It is the Holy Spirit awakening within him a sense of need. It is the power of the Holy Spirit overcoming the pride of the natural man so that he is ready to come to Christ as an empty-handed beggar. It is the Holy Spirit creating within him a hunger for the bread of life. That night... I needed Jesus. I just could not scratch that itch. I could not push it aside anymore. I had to have him. And folks, how many songs do we sing and we acknowledge and celebrate this? What about that old song in the hymn book that says, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love and thus he bound me to him. How is this one? I put it on Facebook this morning. O victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Notice this. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming love. He loved me ere I knew him and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. See, sometimes we sing songs we don't even stop to think about what we're saying. This is, all of this is what Jesus is saying in John 6. And notice in verse 46 and 40, 45 and 46, the call now is to look back and not around. You see, Jesus is in the synagogue, and I love this. And this is where being a pastor is one of these unique things you get to study. Because notice he says that you've heard the prophet say. And then he quotes an Old Testament prophecy. What you need to know is that this is Isaiah 54. And what's amazing is the way the Bible... See, in, in the first century at the synagogues, they didn't have Bibles like this, where you could just have multiple bookmarks and all this thing, and you could find wherever you wanted. These had scrolls. They were massive scrolls. And in the synagogue, they had a yearly calendar for how they read through these scrolls. And you move these things and you put them. They were massive Torah scrolls and Old Testament scrolls. And so at the time of the year that Jesus arrives at this synagogue, during that week, they had read Isaiah 54. And so Jesus, when he says, you have heard from the prophets and picks up that particular scroll, it's already there. It's not random. This would have been fresh on their ears. Somebody in that synagogue likely read that out loud that very week. And so he's telling in the crowd, look, what Isaiah predicted is now happening. I'm here. You're all being taught. I've come down from heaven. I am from the Father, God. I have seen God because I am God. And I've come to show you and to love you and to heal you and to make you alive. You do have issues. I get it. You've got real present needs. I get that too. But you've got a deeper, more eternal need. And so he says, God draws you to himself by opening our eyes. He gives us a new heart and he makes us a new creation. And in verse 646, it's the reminder that you and I can't see God on our own. You need Jesus. If you want to see God, see Jesus. I have an old test. I have a, an Israel, Israeli pastor friend who pastors a church in Tel Aviv. His name is Menno Kalisher. He's the son of a guy named Zvi Kalisher who was a Holocaust, a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. And Menno once explained the Trinity. He said, in the Bible, the Trinity is like this. There's the God we cannot see, the God we can see, and the Spirit of God who indwells us. 
You see, Jesus is the God we can see, who shows us the God we cannot see and indwells us with his spirit. See, the offer just gets better and better. But wait, there's more. Because in the last of the pro the, this passage, there's the great offer remade. You see, there's the offer for us, there's the offering, but now Jesus remakes the offer starting in verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. He makes the incredible promise again. If you will believe in me, if you'll trust in me, you have eternal life. You don't have to worry about a happy meal. I will help you to live forever. You see, once again, Jesus does something in our lives, and it cannot be undone. Even though you'll fail, even though you'll struggle, they don't become null and void because of the promise work of Jesus. You remember what I shared with you last week? These, I think these are the most horrific words of, the, of, of Romans, but they're words that we all know too well. In Romans 7, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, I know what the Bible says. I even like it, and I want to do it. But then he says, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that indwells in my members. And then he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? That's Paul being honest. Paul's like, I know I'm not supposed to lose my temper. I know I'm supposed to treat my spouse with dignity and love and respect. I know I'm supposed to parent my kids properly. I know I'm supposed to be honest. I know that my yes should be yes and my no is no. I know I shouldn't be a hypocrite. I know I should be. And I like that. But the truth it is, when I get up in the morning, I start to fail. I saw a meme just this past week, and I should have posted it. I wanted to bring it to you. Actually, it's on my computer, and I forgot to give it to Steve. Someone put a meme out on Facebook. It says, Lord, I want you to know I haven't lied yet today. I haven't lost my temper yet today. I've been a real, basically, I've been a really good boy. I've really knocked it. But he's, and then the end of it says, but now I'm about to get out of bed, and I know it's about to go horribly wrong. <laughs> do you not feel like that? I do. I know what God wants from me. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I find it hard to do it. And you can be discouraged. But when you realize that Jesus says, I'm the one who will save you and keep you. And like I said last week, if this is where Paul ended, life would be miserable. And the tragedy is too many professing Christians live most of their lives stuck in the past, frozen in the present struggle. Or they believe Jesus saved them and forgave them and they believe yet that they have to maintain it. But listen to what Paul says next in Romans 7. Thanks be to God, listen, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not about me knocking it out of the park. It's about me trusting in the one who's done it for me. Oh, that you and I could get this in our church in the 21st century. See, Jesus contrasts the temporary versus the eternal. He reminds the crowd that Moses and the nation of Israel who made, ate manna, they've all died. In other words, temporary satisfaction will never save you. So as we clue up, let me make this clear, all right? Let me make it very clear. God is interested in people, not stuff. You need to know that. He's interested in the soul of a man or woman, not their perceived comfort. Let me try and illustrate it for you. What if you went to your doctor this week 
and all your doctor did treating you as a patient only ever is interested in making your pain go away but never treats the source of your pain. What happens? Eventually, the patient's going to die. If you only ever treat the symptoms but never the disease, it's not going to go well for you. A good doctor feels the pain of his or her patient Longs to help the patient, but knows the greatest need of the patient is to heal the patient. Treating only the symptoms, but not the disease, kills people. Yet, let's be honest, because I've been a patient. I've been in pain. And when I'm in pain, you know what's usually on my mind? My pain. That's usually all I can think about. Is the pain. I'm blinded by my pain. I'm consumed by my pain. I'm convinced that all I want is the pain to go away. You see, in the midst of pain, I rarely think of the disease. I only think about the pain. But that means I need a doctor to tell me what my real issues are and what will need to happen to make it right. And sometimes the doc says, listen, I know you're in pain and I want to help you there, but you need to deal with the disease. And that might even mean more pain so that you can one day be healed. Every one of you in here deals with the effects of sin pain. And some of you are blinded by it. Some of you are consumed by it. Some of you are convinced, if I could just get the pain to go away, and so you try to medicate your pain of life through money, sex, relationships, career, fun, friendships, impulse buying, denial. When Jesus says, no, listen, you don't need me to give you stuff. You need me to heal you of your disease. And so what does that passage mean for you and I today? Number one, Jesus is all you need. Again, I quote my grandfather, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. I'm not here to wow you with my creativity because I don't have any. Jesus is all we need. And don't miss the irony of us trying to be our own God. Well, we're trying to add Jesus to our lives. But let me ask you, for those of you that are trying to live your life while adding a little bit of Jesus, how's that working out for you? I spent 21 years trying to live my life while adding a bit of Jesus. I had varying levels of success. You know what it ultimately all it did for me? Was increase my self-righteous pride, increase my fear of anybody knowing who the real me was, and increase my anger because I was always frustrated. That's all it did. But when I found out that Jesus was all I need, it changed my life. It freed me. My good friend Sam Albury put it like this. He said, we've spent six days being told by ourselves and others to boast in our looks, our achievements, our relationships, our kids, our security, our homes, our grades, our finances, and our friendships. Tomorrow, because he said this yesterday, we meet together to remind one another to only and always boast in Christ. All you need is Jesus. Was it the Beatles that said all we need is love? They were on to something, but they didn't go all the way. Because all you need is Jesus. Jesus is all you need. He's the only one you need. You need his love. 
You needed him to come. You needed him to live for you and die for you and rise from the dead for you. You need him to tell you what's wrong with you. You need him to tell you how to live. You need to trust and who to, who to trust and who not to trust. You need him to be there to run to. You need him to be there to lean on and cry to. You need him in pain and success. You need him in hope and you need him in the sense of life and put to make sense of life and put the pieces together when life falls apart and you need to feed on him. And so secondly, we take from this passage, don't let your lack of understanding and who Jesus is hinder you from placing your trust in him. This passage is rich with theological ramifications. The religious leaders couldn't accept the claims of Jesus. The crowd weren't looking for these claims from Jesus. The religious simply wanted affirmation. The crowd wanted confirmation. Neither truly wanted Jesus, nor do they understand that Jesus is the offering. But friends, as Christians... We can and we do struggle understanding. Listen, I read my Bible all the time and I go, what am I supposed to do with that? And if you think that you read your Bible and you got it all figured out, you're not reading the right Bible. Jesus is mysterious. This is why Paul says what he does at the end of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Steve Da, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I'm going to tell you right now, I spend my life studying scripture. And often I come up with more questions than answers. But here's what I do know. Jesus is real. He's God in the flesh. And he's all I need. And I don't let my lack of understanding hinder me from placing my trust in him. I'm going to go out and go up that hill and I'm going to get my car, hit the little button and the car is going to start and I'm going to drive home. Any one of you ask me about the, the workings of the internal combustion engine, I don't know. I know I push the button, it starts. I hit the gas, it moves. I hit the brake, it stops. That's all I know. But it doesn't stop me from driving my car because I trust in what's under the hood to do what it's supposed to do. Trust in Jesus. We will have times of questions, even doubts, but that never undermines God or his truthfulness. Ray Ortland Jr. expresses the struggle we all have with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It's beautiful. If God is sovereign, and he is, and if I am responsible, and I am, then God makes me do his will of my own free will. I don't understand that, which is fine with me. See, I love that. I love it. I know that God drew me to him. I can't explain it. I just know it. And I trust him. And finally, if you're only looking out for yourself, then Jesus the person will always offend you. Do you remember that what Jesus said only a few verses back when he was walking on water to the disciples? He said, it is I, do not be afraid. He said this as if he himself was all they needed to be okay. Let me ask you, church, do we have the faith in Jesus that Jesus has in Jesus? Do we have the faith in Jesus that Jesus has? You see, Jesus has just made the most incredible offer that these folks could or would ever receive. 
Come to me. I'll never cast you out. I'll keep you forever. I'll provide for you. I'll forgive you and restore you and love you and come back for you and make you right with God. But instead of even acknowledging this, they stop and go, wait, um, did you just say you came from heaven? What's up with that? They didn't even hear the offer of salvation because they didn't want to. David Pallison says, in our adultery, we make gifts out of out to be supreme goods, and we make the giver into the errand boy of our desires. Ouch. Keller says, if we look to human beings more than the God for our worth and value, we'll be trapped by anxiety, by an over-need to please, by the inability to withdraw from exploitive relationships, by the inability to take criticism, and by a cowardice that makes us unable to confront others. Folks, that's word gold. If you struggle with who Jesus is, you're going to struggle with everything he offers. So let's be honest here today. We all often think like the Jews that somehow the offer of the gospel or even the gospel itself is different from Jesus and who he is. When in fact this passage says Jesus points to himself and says, I am the gospel. It's not the offer and the offerer. The offerer is the offering. And so you cannot say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. No, then that means you don't love Jesus. I love Jesus, but not all the hell stuff in the Bible. Well, then that means you don't love Jesus. I love Jesus, but not all that sacrifice stuff and trust him with my life stuff and wait on him stuff. Then you don't love Jesus. Imagine if I said, I love Debbie. I love Debbie, but I hate everything she likes. I've got no issue in knowing what she likes. I can't stand what she wants. I couldn't be bothered to listen to her or wonder what she's passionate about. Would any of you think I loved her? Exactly. And yet so many Christians, I love Jesus, but I don't like anything that he wants from me. Then you're not getting him. You're confusing the offer and the offerer. Do you understand that Jesus loves you, but he loves you enough not to leave you as you are? And so if you're here this morning and you don't know him, let me tell you something, okay? Don't give up on yourself. If you've not come to Jesus, none of the things keeping you from him will stand against God's mighty grace. I've never met the sinner who came to God who God didn't want. You are not hopeless. You are helpless, but you're not hopeless. <coughs> and Jesus will save you. If God is speaking to your heart, come to him and rejoice because he, he says whoever believes has eternal life. Two chapters from now in John 8, 36, he'll say, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And Christian, listen to me. How do you put all this into practice? Number one, be committed to the word of God. How are we going to see people saved and our lives changed? Get into the word of God. The old Sunday school is right. Son, son, Sunday school song is right. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. That's not a cliche. That's reality. Be committed to evangelistic prayer. If only God can open the heart of your child or a parent or a spouse or a friend, then let's appeal to God. Let's not stress over how do we convince someone to get saved instead let's go to God and say Lord you save people save my son save my daughter save my mom save my dad save my friend 
Save my member. When was the last time you or I ever said, God, would you just save this person? George Mueller prayed for his brother his entire life. And on his deathbed, a skeptic went to him and said, Mueller, you had all this faith, but your brother is not saved and you're dying. And what did Mueller say? You're right. I'm dying. He's not. His life's not done yet. Fifteen years after Mueller died, his brother came to Christ. We got to be committed to evangelistic prayer. And finally, you got to be convinced that God can save anybody. I don't care who it is. I don't care what they're struggling with. I don't care what they've done. If God saves, he saves. Let us keep preaching, let us keep preaching God's word pointing to Christ, living in a way that commends our witness, and let us keep praying, never giving up on anyone. Can you do that? We can't. Church, let's get it done. Which means, let him get it done. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I do want to be the first to practice what I preach. Lord, I have friends and family that I love. And right now, today, they don't trust you. And Lord, they're not enemies. I'm not better than them. I'm just desperate for you to do in their lives what only you can do and I can't. I pray that you would change us as a church, that we would not leave here today running out the door and not getting to know each other and being honest. I pray that we would be committed to the word of God and committed to evangelistic prayer and committed that you can and will save anyone. I pray that a high view of your sovereignty doesn't cripple us but empower us. And I pray that we will not confuse the offer of the gospel with the offerer of Jesus Christ because they're one and the same. And as we close in song, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, may they be courageous enough to come and ask about you. If there's anyone here feeling the drawing of God, may they feel the need and feel that hunger and that thirst to come and be satisfied by Jesus Christ. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would not get discouraged. We would not stop spreading the gospel. And we would start acting like we are messed up people who worship a perfect Savior. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.